Welcome to Pazina Perspectives, brought to you by Pazina Investment Management, a global value manager known for our commitment to fundamental research and disciplined value investing. On today's episode, U.S. small cap portfolio manager Evan Fox is joined by Rod Rushing, CEO of Rev Group, a specialty vehicle manufacturer that Pazina owns in our small cap focused value portfolio. Evan, I'm so excited to be here to talk to you today. We have a very special guest. We do. We're joined today by Rod Rushing, the CEO of Rev Group. Before we get to the interview itself, I think it would be helpful if you just gave us a little bit of background, a little context on Rev Group. It's not a company I really know, and I would love to know just how did you find it? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's one of the important parts of the research process here at Pazina is we're always trying to find unique companies that are good businesses that, for some reason, the stocks are cheap. And usually that means that there's some sort of problem. And that issue can be temporary or permanent. And really, the gist of the research problem is finding out what is going on. Is this something that's structural or is this something that's temporary? So... How exactly do you start the process of researching a stock? So we here at Pazina start the process everywhere, whether we're looking at U.S. small cap companies, European companies, Japanese companies, or anywhere else. We, we use a screening tool to rank all the stocks from least expensive to most expensive, really looking at their history, what their growth rates have been, what their margins have been, and thinking what that could be in the future, just in a very simple way before even putting human overview on top of that. In the case of Rev Group, this is a company that had fallen in half since its IPO in early 2017. And margins had improved a little bit, but they were still well below peer levels. So we didn't have to assume much margin and expansion for the stock to be cheap. At the same time, we quickly came to see that this company really had a number of strong brands and leading positions in some core markets, including fire trucks, ambulances, and transit buses. So we decided to take it to what we call an initial review. What's involved in this initial review? Well, the initial review really asks a few key questions. What does the business do? How do they make money? Why is it cheap? And what do we need to believe for it to be interesting? Okay. Question one, what does it do? So Rev Group, it's a roll-up of almost 30 specialty vehicle brands across fire trucks, ambulances, transit buses, street sweepers, recreational vehicles, most of which buy chassis from big OEMs like Ford or Mercedes, and then they put a box in the back. Or there's some where they make their own chassis, which means putting together the engine with the platform, the wheels, and everything that goes with it. And because they've rolled up this market, they make up nearly a third of the fire truck market, more than half the ambulances. They're a leader in the Class A shorter school buses and some of these other product lines. And second question was, why is it cheap? Yeah, exactly. And as I said before, it went public in early 2017. And prior management had all these margin expansion targets driven by volume and pricing growth and some efficiency gains and some new product lines. Well, they weren't hitting those targets. And because of that, really the market lost faith in the company and ultimately was trading at a a lower valuation because of that. 
And the the last question I think you mentioned was something about um, what you need to believe in in order for this company to be interesting to you as an investment, right? Exactly. And so there are a few things we looked at. One, we have to believe, are these good brands with leading positions? And that consists of due diligence with customers and competitors. Then we have to we wanted to understand fire truck demand because what's interesting is when you looked at 20-year demand, there was a long period of underinvestment after lots of investment from 9-11 until the global financial crisis, but the fleet was aging as, for example, many of these trucks have a 15-year half-life. Also, there were some steel and supply chain issues, and they had to figure out how to manage those. So you went through your initial review, you asked the three questions, you got the answers, you found it to be interesting, correct? Exactly. And now what's the next step? Well, the next step is taking it forward to what we call a final review, and that's really where the heavy lifting begins. Okay. So tell me about that. What do you do in final review? So that's where we speak to current and former executives. We spoke to the head of the International Association of Fire Chiefs. We spoke to competitors. And I will say we really came to understand that there's a lot of uh, value and importance to these brands. And it was even interesting when we were uh, speaking to fire chiefs that these are really differentiated products. This is not where it's an off-the-shelf producing many, many of the same fire truck. Every chief wants some sort of custom truck, and they're willing to pay for that differentiation. And it was even an interesting anecdote that they said every firefighter wants to add their own special features, right? You figure some towns, the tallest building is three stories versus eight in another. But when a truck is bought by a committee, it adds 15 to 20 percent of the cost to it because everyone wants something different and unique. And we really found that to be an, an interesting part of this business. So it sounds like, a, so far, what I've heard is a really great business. Were there challenges or problems that you found along the way? Well, the main weakness I'd say we found was that this was a roll-up of almost 30 brands, as we mentioned before, and they really hadn't been fully integrated. So they were working on ERP implementation, bringing together the back-end systems. They hadn't consolidated all their purchasing, even though many of these brands actually bought the exact same products from the exact same customers or similar products. And they needed to add more people to their sourcing capabilities. And so really, integration was one of the biggest problems and an area for, that we could really see for improvement. So ultimately, did you choose to invest? We did. And really, this is what we look for as small cap value managers. A fantastic book of business, perhaps a bit undermanaged, but at a, at a discount because of this. And that's what creates opportunities for us. You know, I, th I think what's really notable is that often people think of small cap companies as little peers to bigger players, but that's really not true very often. If, you, if really they were just subscale players against bigger players, they'd lose, right? That's the very nature of scale and operating efficiencies. So that's what's really exciting. You get a small cap leader in a niche market, has some operational issues, but great potential, especially if you're a patient value investor that has a long-term investment horizon. And so that did lead us to making to building a position about three years ago. Okay, so it sounds like you went through the entire research process, you did your deep dive, the investment thesis made sense, and you invested. Has anything changed since then? That really takes us to the discussion we're excited to have today with Rod Rushing, who became CEO of Rev Group in March of 2020, right as COVID was hitting and everything was changing. 
Broad had been president of Building Solutions at Johnson Controls, and in our mind, he was a big upgrade in operational expertise and really an exciting addition to a company that needed to improve its manufacturing and its sourcing in order to achieve the levels of profitability commensurate with their market position. Evan, thank you so much for giving us this background on Rev Group. I think it's really helped us to get context. And let's just jump right into your discussion. So, Rod, thank you so much for joining us here today. You joined Rev Group almost exactly two years ago and probably had no way of anticipating how much the world was about to change. Maybe let's start off by asking what made you choose to come to Rev Group what you saw as the biggest strengths and issues at the time. Well, I think, I mean, obviously there's an opportunity to be a publicly traded CEO. So it was, that was interesting on the surface, but, but that wasn't really necessarily the reason why Evan, why decided to do it. I mean, I was at a spot in my career. I'd spent many, many years with John's controls. It was a great company to work with. I was there 30 years. And, um, and you get to a point where you're like, you want to go try, the things you've learned out in a new environment and that and this particular opportunity struck me for a number of reasons it was it was recently ipo'd it was a it was a formed out of a, a private equity consolidation so there was a cultural element of a bunch of companies coming together and you could look at the operational performance and tell that they hadn't quite hit their stride yet so there was a, a view that that there was work there to do both operationally and culturally and also foundationally around building a, building a new company. Um, and and I'm very, I'd spent my career both in manufacturing and field service type organizations. This was obviously heavy manufacturing. It was an opportunity to get more back into that. Lastly, was there, there what this company does really matters to, to people and communities. And I think when you get a chance in any way to be part of something that feels like you're giving back, it really struck me in that regard as well, that you know, you'd be helping communities, not, not knowing that, at the, at the moment I chose to come here that I was walking in as we all were into COVID and, and the things that we do become maybe mattered a bit more, but, uh, but that was really it. It was some personal reasons. It was some professional challenges an opportunity to be something part of something new. And then there's a kind of a personal calling as well. When you were looking at this, what made Rev's portfolio unique and interesting for you specifically? You know, I, I it's, you get a lot of calls. And I think the reason why this one made sense to me is that, you know, I've across my career, I've been given the opportunity within JCI to walk into a lot of new situations, even though I worked with one company, it really was a, a, a many businesses inside of one, one, one company. So I was able to walk into situations that were new to me, although they're part of a singular, singular company. And in, in this particular situation, you know, I, I always fancy myself that doing turnarounds was, was something that I'd gotten lots of experience doing, going in and making things better because they were struggling for whatever reason. And this certainly was that. I mean, um, it, there there was a business here that was was not performing well. And I, and again, it was manufacturing lots of the product side. The products were heavy manufacturing, so it was it was exciting to me from that standpoint. And then um, and it just felt like that combination and the timing seemed right. And so. COVID was hitting right as you joined. I feel like all the lockdowns were within a week or two of you starting. How did that impact your initial plans for the business and the priorities that you had coming in? Yeah, well, it's it's true. My my last week at John's Controls, the, the office was basically empty. I spent my last day 
in the office, probably one of very, very few people there. So when I came here, um, you know, it, it was very much the same, but a different, different environment. I think in terms of, you know, it obviously shifted a priority. You come in with uh, having studied a bit what you wanted to go address or get informed around. And then it really became quickly, how do you make sure that you, you can operate in a safe environment, your people protected and that you're, you're, uh, complying to all the right protocols around what 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 that would entail and so that that was really important first off is how are we going to manage that situation for our people because we were uh, identified as a um, as a essential business or a, a business that needed to continue to operate because of what we do and so what we wanted to do make sure we did that in the safest way possible so spent a lot of time on that and then obviously, because the markets were slowing down, you weren't generating revenue, plants were idled or whatever you had, you know, and in the, the situation we were in at that particular time we, that we've since resolved, we were in a bit of a cash situation. We had to manage our cash flow. So we got really intense around, a lot of intensity around cash management so we could exit this thing in, in good standing, which we were able to do. But, uh, and then, but the, the honest truth, I mean, one of the things that is as bad as it was and as, as much as we never want to go have that experience again it did expose some things for us and it creates a, 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 um, a, a case for change, a compelling event around people seeing things that we really needed to go do because at a low tide, you see all the seashells and, and we saw our problems when we had this pressure on us. And it was an opportunity for me to get the team aligned around the agenda that we had, we had to go get done going forward. It's interesting you say that. I'm, I'm curious, did you feel that you had the right team in place? We know that you've changed over quite a few members of the management team since you joined. And how much of that was accelerated or decelerated because of what was going on? Yeah, I don't think that um, it gave me a different view of people because I got to see them operating in a in a really challenging environment. And so you see, maybe saw an angle on folks that you may take longer to get to. Um, I don't think it necessarily accelerated the people transition because, you you know, my, my view is you walk into a situation, you're always, you take on the responsibility, you got to make the changes that you, you need to make. Um, but you don't come in with a view of, um, you want to see the, the, the business operating and get people working the problem. But we have made, to your point, made considerable changes to leadership Um for the right reasons, I think, uh, and, and each situation stands alone, but we have had a pretty significant transition. But the, but the main thing we did early on was we need to get people aligned around what we're trying to accomplish, where we're going, what we're going to do, how we're going to do it, how we're going to organize around it, how we're going to operate, what our cadence is going to be, what, what our priorities are, and, uh, and, and, and get the team working more uh, collaboratively together around problem solving and, and making a different, different day for tomorrow. Well, one of the biggest problems that you guys dealt with that was even a little bit of an issue before COVID, but became a bigger one over the course of the last couple of years, and has been an issue for everybody throughout the economy is supply chains. Can you talk through a little bit the positioning of RevGroup's supply chain and sourcing before you joined, how that's evolved and where we are today as you do try to get all the components you need to complete your vehicles? Yeah. So... You know, whether you're talking about the front end of supply chain, which is more of a purchasing and strategic strategic sourcing activity, or you're talking about the back end, which is materials management, how you execute and get flow in your plants. We had a very distributed business. You know, the, the, the thesis of these companies coming together was still um, 
unresolved because all the companies were pretty much operating independently. So there was no leveraging of purchasing scale. There was no purchasing organization. There was an affiliation and administrative type role that we had, but there was no one driving that 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 cadence on how we're going to go do that. So one of the things we did early on is we we made a decision that um, we're going to have to have a, a, a world-class purchasing organization. So we quickly began, thankfully, because we didn't realize because the, the supply chain issues really lagged the immediacy of the of the COVID thing, right? It was, it was a tailing effect of, you know, the world shutting down for a while and all the impacts from that and then the lingering effects of COVID. Um, we, we were able to put a supply chain or purchasing organization in place, but th that I believe, you know, is, is in large part allowed us to, to continue to operate at a, at, a, at a decent level during this past six to nine months despite the fact that we've got some unprecedented challenges. So we, we made that a priority, Evan, to get that purchasing organization in place. But having said that, we didn't, we haven't made, we didn't make the progress that we, we made the progress we wanted, but we got confronted with these external market challenges that, that put us under a lot of pressure. So a lot of the momentum that we were, we were putting together around the things we wanted to go do that bandwidth, that capacity of people to go drive change, someone got redirected to go, go, operate the lean in to help operate the business so we can maintain flow and maintain supply chain. So the supply chain issue has been a problem for us for, for two reasons. It's been a problem like it's been for everybody. It's a large issue for, for industrials, but because of our lack of maturity in our processes, particularly around uh, supply chain management and materials, we've had a lot of, uh, a lot of hand to hand combat that we've had to fight and the team's done a great job with it, kept our plants going. I think uh, our, we're pretty pleased what we've got, but but it's a lot of work uh, to keep our to keep our lines moving. A lot of work. One of the biggest and most notable things that you purchase in high volume is, of course, chassis. Right, the Ford and GM and Mercedes chassis that make the front of the ambulances and shuttle buses and transit buses and other vehicles that you make. I'm curious to ask, with all the chip shortages and shortages of vehicles generally. What is your relationship with the OEMs today and your ability to get products? Yeah, about half of our half of our finished goods, half of our finished vehicles are built on uh, a, com a commercial chassis coming from Ford, Mercedes, GM, Freightliner, uh, um, Dodge, um, those those folks. So um, I, I th actually believe, I mean, it's a very trying time for them and for us that the communications and the level of detail and the relationship in terms of understanding and communicating is better now than it was prior to the situation. You know, crises make you, make you rise to an occasion. And, and again, we're, we, we need more chassis. We have more backlog than we can build right now because we can't source chassis as well as, as many of the other components that you were referring to earlier. But uh, we have daily, weekly, monthly conversations with these folks around what's available how how can we get access to it and uh, and make sure they got good visibility to our demand? We're trying to do better and better around giving them line of sight to our to our plans and our slotting so we can get uh, uh, vehicles on the ground, chassis on the ground from them to meet our timing. Because if we miss a day, it's a, it's it's a problem for us just like it would be for anybody. So I think that you know they're doing. I certainly feel that they're sensitive to the fact they know that we're serve industries where our communities are at stake and people are at stake. And I think that they're sensitive to that and work with us in, in that regard. And I do believe they're, they're, they're practically managing it with us, but it's just a challenging time. And uh, 
um, to, to work through those details. But uh, it's it's all weekly conversations that we're having with them, Evan, on those topics. So, Rod, you spoke about how most of these vehicles, maybe half of them you build on a commercial chassis and the other half you might build yourself. What exactly is a chassis, just to explain that? I, I think the, the simplest way to think about it in layman's terms is, is to visualize a vehicle in your mind. And underneath that vehicle, there's a frame that everything gets mounted to, including the axles and the, and the wheels. And then there's the engine, the drivetrain that drives the vehicle and the cab. So it's, it's basically pulling everything off except for the cab, the engine, the drivetrain, the frame, and, and the wheels. And it's the underlying kind of structural part of a vehicle that allows you to build on to adapt that vehicle to, to a purpose-built use. So that's how I would explain it in layman's terms. So when we think of a school bus or an ambulance versus an ice cream truck, are they fundamentally different? Yeah, they're, 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 they are fundamentally different. So you're going to have a different engine, a different length, a different body, a different cab, but the components are the same. You're going to have wheels, you're going to have an engine, you're going to have a cab, and you're going to have a frame. It's just going to be a different configuration based on the class of vehicle that you're, that you're building towards. So a ice cream truck would definitely be different than, than um, a, a, an RV Freightliner Class C vehicle, but but the components you'd, you'd find the same components on them all. There's just different different uh, designs. If you're someone like Ford, how do they prioritize producing F-150s or F-350s versus the chassis that you need? Should we be thinking of these as similar products, or are they facing different challenges? You know, I don't know that I can completely answer that one for them, how they, I, how they prioritize having to be fair to them. I do, I, I do assume, you know, obviously the components and the materials that they go into the, the, the chassis that we would buy compared to, you mentioned an F-150 with Ford or wh whomever it might be are similar. So they're, they're having to make some prioritization decision, decisions around that. And we do have conversations with them about that because we want our needs met as, as you can imagine. <laughs> um, but the, they, their internal processes for how they decide what gets done and wasn't get done. I don't have transparency on that necessarily. What are the current lead times for you to produce your vehicles? Yeah, it, it varies a lot, but all of our lead times are extended right now as they are across the industries that we serve. I, I can tell you first and foremost, because we check this a lot with our in customers and municipalities and with our dealer partners, uh, that our lead times are still very competitive in some cases as good or better than our competition. But you know, for um, our fire apparatus business, it's it's well above a year. Um, most of our leads, I think, generally rather than going through all of them, I'd say that they're all extended over what you'd want as a, a normal lead time, and they're all approaching a year right now, a year plus, uh, as our backlog is over a year, a year extended too. It is pretty incredible that it's grown to be that long because of some of the different delays. Are you seeing people canceling orders or? Uh, otherwise changing what they're hoping to receive? We have not, we have not seen, um, um, I mean, you've got anecdotal cancelizations, but anything of scale that, that would be material, nothing. Um, orders. I mean, you have a, a, a typical flow in these, in these custom vehicles that things get developed over time as you go through the process, but, but nothing that's materially different than historical change. It's helpful because it leads to a natural question of inflation that we've been seeing throughout the economy over the last uh, couple of quarters. And maybe the simple question that I'll start with is, can you 
pay more to get components you need faster to complete vehicles. And then we'll get to right afterwards the pricing side of the willingness to pay in order to get products. Yeah, there's there's not much uh, availability is not uh, is not very based on price, right? So what we've seen in anything in our in our supply chain right now, we're not able to get access to more quicker because we'll pay more. I haven't seen that. Um, it's it, there, uh, and I think the the the, the question I think you asked at the beginning was, you know, how we, how we look at a price, price cost in this equation. We're still aggressively pursuing um, savings and part of our spend because we, because of the nature of the way we did purchasing in the past, we still have opportunities in our, in our purchasing, believe it or not, despite the inflationary environment to get, to buy things for less than we bought them for historically. And so we're able to offset part of the inflationary pressure we're seeing um, through continuing to drive uh, purchasing savings and in, in, in part of our spend, and then obviously we're we're you know as all, all manufacturers doing right now we're we're aggressively pursuing price to offset the the cost inflation that we see in our in our backlog and, and forward forecasting that to make sure that we can maintain price price cost on a forward basis. Well, one of the things that's interesting that we've seen with many companies is they've come through a twenty year period of minimal inflation where this the time it takes to produce products is not particularly long and the inflation rates are not so high. Now we've gone to this different period where it might take you 12 to 15 months to produce something that used to take three to six months and inflation is kicking in during that period. How do you just internally plan for that when it's a new managerial challenge versus what you faced and anyone has faced in the last couple of decades? I think it is a new challenge and the muscles built around this and organizationally, we're, we're, the reflexes weren't there as, as you would expect when, because we've been very fortunate over a 40-year period to work in a pretty nominal inflationary environment. We haven't had it. Um, I think one of the things that we did right is we were aggressively going out and pursuing net save, like I just talked about. But we also, the front end of this thing, uh, began to move prices up as well. So we, and arguably, you, you might say, was it enough? We, we continue to mine this every day. We continue to look at backlog. Uh, pricing opportunities. It's very, it's not easy to do that. Part of our businesses do allow you to reprice backlogs. So uh, about a third of our revenues in a space where we can do that. So that makes a, that makes it a little easier, but uh, the, we're just aggressively looking at cost and we're looking at price and we're looking at price against cost in our, in our backlog and, and, and tweaking as we have to, to make sure that we're going out and getting more price or going after pri uh, cost save or, or price in backlog. To, to make sure we can maintain policy price cost. Order of magnitude, how much more does a comparable vehicle cost now than it did a couple of years ago? You know, that's um, that's uh, a great question. I did, one, you'd have to kind of tune it into a specific vehicle, but I, I'd say I'd say it's, it's, it's well in the double digits more than what it was a year ago. And it varies by RV to fire apparatus. They're all different, but but they're all... The price that we've taken across these cumulative is, is more than ten to double digits uh, to offset offset cost. When you look at this, how do you think about the price elasticity and how responsible the competitors have been, and how much customers need to get these products? Yeah, you know it's interesting. I we have seen demand move ahead of ahead of price increase uh, announcements. So you'll see you'll make a price. You, we, you'll say anything ordered beyond a date will be subject to that new price. And you will see orders kind of try to move out in front of that date. 
which is counterproductive to the whole why you're taking the price. So we try to manage that. And we've actually, the, the first couple of price increases we did, we were, had a little challenge around that, but we've been able to work through that. And then in our subsequent price price increases, we haven't had those issues. Um, but uh, it hasn't, we haven't seen a measurable effect on demand. It's actually almost had a, an opposite effect. It was, as prices have gone up, these order rates have continued to increase. Uh, and a lot of it's, I, I, you know, a lot of it has to be uh, some pin up that came from, the orders that weren't placed during, you know, the, the COVID period when people weren't really weren't doing that. And plus, I think the availability of funding in some cases that was made through some of the relief packages is also beginning to make its way down to the uh, municipalities. So they're, they're able to leverage those funds to, to upgrade their infrastructure. That's helpful because so far we've really been talking generally about the challenges you're facing across the broader portfolio. But I'm curious to talk through the end demand a bit on a product by product to understand which of the markets are above or below trend and how you're thinking about uh, the amount of orders that you expect, not just in the next few quarters, but really in the coming years, given your portfolio. Yeah. I, I well, First of all, I'd say that um, with the exception of maybe transit bus and maybe school bus as a, as a secondary, but which is recovering now, we are starting to see that all these markets have been operating over historical averages uh, and seasonal, including seasonality. So I think we've had um, uh, the demand that's kind of out, outpaced, outpaced uh, ship and been on a, a book to book positive as, as well. Um, I think when we, our expectation and, and we, we do our best to forecast a, a, a forward look at demand and you're working through third parties, our dealer organization, which you don't always get great, communications around you know what's coming but everything we've had speaks to you know, continued solid demand going forward in the next few months uh, and that's usually accurate for a, uh, a 90 to 180 time time frame but I think we're, we'll begin to see it normalize I don't I don't know that we're gonna you know our ambulance business had an incredible demand last year um, but we don't expect that demand to continue forever I think it'll go back it'll, it'll make its way back to historical averages uh, at some point, whether that's in the next 90 days or 12 months, who knows, but it's, it's not sustainable at the levels it is, but still we got such strong backlogs. we got such strong market shares that even with that, uh, we actually would all benefit from maybe some slowdown so we could actually catch up on our lead times and, and get some orders delivered, to be honest with you. It also would help us, you know, help the supply chain dynamic potentially, um, allow us to get back into some of the problem solving opportunities and value creation opportunities that we saw initially coming into this thing two years ago where we started our story here um, um, to get back into that versus really working hard just to get materials so we can produce vehicles. That's kind of become a, fo a real focus of, the, of, our, of our management team right now is, is, is throughput. And as you're designing for this, as you said that there's some markets that are below trend, some are above trend, how do you plan up your future ramps for up and down and handle some of this cyclicality that naturally occurs in a manufacturing business? Well, I, I think the right now the idea of ramping is is a, is more of a wish than <laughs> than a plan because you know the the first issue you got is if you brought you know it's a labor business when you're ramping you you, you do have some things you can do from a, a plant layout but it's, it's largely bringing more labor in right now if you brought them in you could, you wouldn't have materials to to put them to work. And so the secondary issue behind all this is going to be the labor. 
the labor constraint we have right now, we're dealing with material shortages. Uh, but once we get the material shortages solved, it, the ramping challenge will be become more of getting access to labor markets. Labor, labor markets are very competitive right now. You know, all I, I talked to a, a number of peers and, 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 and former colleagues, all industrials are struggling with turnover that exceeds historical norms because the opportunities for people to, to take new opportunities is, 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 is pretty incredible out there right now. So there's a lot of things that are going to affect our ability to, 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 to ramp once we exit this. But obviously, you know, right now, the biggest issue we got is, is material shortages and our processes around managing material shortages. Got it. As you're seeing that turnover in personnel, do you find that there's a lot of institutional expertise that's lost or how much of the turnover is at the managerial level versus at the blue collar and manufacturing level? Yeah, we actually, well, our, our business is, is largely uh, manufacturing. You know, I, I, I'd say 80 to 85% of our employees are, are, are manufacturing labor, direct or indirect labor. So just on a, on a numbers basis, it's going to be more of that than it is uh, uh, white collar workers. But uh, the, um, but the majority of the people that we, that we see transitioning is people with less than a year to two years experience. That's that when you pray to it out, that's the people that, uh, that we have the, the greatest amount of turnover in. So you're not the institution, you, you will lose institutional knowledge, but your base of employees, your long-term employees are not moving at the rates that uh, your shorter term employees are. Have you then seen more labor inflation for those more junior employees relative to the rest of the labor force? You, we, we try to manage that up and down the scale the best we can and make sure that we're not, you know, uh, bringing in people to a higher scale than the people they're in. Uh, we've done scale adjustments. You, know, you got your annual increases that you give to your labor that you offset through your operations, but we've also had to do structural adjustments for that very reason uh, to make sure that uh, that we're we're managing that effectively. That's helpful. So now, Ron, as we think about going forward, you know, one of the things that has, was a big focal point for you in coming in was talking through product design, engineering design, and making sure that we're not just making the same vehicles more efficiently, but we're actually designing vehicles in a way that makes more sense for everyone. Can you talk through some of those changes in terms of what might not have been optimally run in the past and can be fixed and where you are in doing that? Yeah, I, I think the probably the, the, um, the easiest one to kind of wrap your head around is, is the fire apparatus business, because, you know, we've got a number of brands in our, in our, in our enterprise portfolio in the fire apparatus. We've got a number of manufacturing centers and all being acquired over, over a period of time, they all had singularly done every operation that you do to be need to be, exist in that in the fire apparatus industry. So they all made every type of truck. They all had every kind of process. They all did it differently. So we're looking across obviously the process side, but not only on the manufacturing, but also on the fabrication and on the uh, engineering of where should we do what and, 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 and to, to get, which I think about as centers of excellence. So where should we build cabs and chassis? And that doesn't mean a single location, but it, it does get you in a different spot versus saying everybody should do it. So that's the first thing you decide what we're going to build, where and why. And then you think about what footprints do we need and not need. And we've announced one of the transitions we're going through right now with one of our locations um, to move brand and channel very much alive 
very committed to that, but we, we had more footprint than, than, than we necessarily needed. So we had to make a change there because of economic, economic reasons. But then long-term you get into, you know, how do you think about commonality design? How do you think about, we, we talk, term it as product platforming to how much, what is the in-market required differentiation to, to, to uniquely identify a brand? What is that specifically? And then once you get through that process of understanding that anything that's not in that space would arguably be subject for commonization, standardization, you know, not everything is, is important to the, to the, to the brand identity, getting to know that from a market back standpoint is really, really important. That's a long piece of work, but uh, that that's where we're, we're headed is we want to make sure that the brands and our channels can compete based on the value the brands have, but not every single screw has to be unique to every single truck. And we're, we're, and we're working through that process right now. It's interesting because as anyone who's ever seen a fire truck drive down the street, they all look a little different, but they all look pretty similar in terms of having a ladder or having hoses. How unique are these? And how should we be thinking about what the real differentiating factors are between the different vehicles? They're um, incredibly unique. And you're right. Your first glance on it, you, you say, well, that's a fire truck. But when you get into the size of the boxes, the number of steps to get into the truck, the, the different seat configurations, there's many, many different types of fire trucks in terms of sizes and lengths and, and purpose. You know, you got wildlands, you got, you got, uh, aerials, you've got pumpers, you've got, you got rescues, you've got all these different trucks for different needs. And then inside of that, they come in many variations in a, in each type. Um, you know, the, the storage compartments are, it's incredibly complex. The different, the different requirements that a unique municip each municipality might say they need. So I, one of the things you get, you have to be responsive to end markets, but you also have to have a mindset of how do I shape demand? How do I provide something that's, that's got a, it's a framework for what in markets need that I can actually accommodate a customer's requirements based on a configuration versus everything's a one-off unique. And uh, this is a, I think all manufacturers in this industry would probably say they're, they're trying to solve this because the way the industry is kind of formed is that each municipality designs their own truck of what they want. And then they find someone to build that and they all have tires. They all have, <laughs> they all have common things, but they, it's how they get configured. I, I, I I'll get this number wrong, but for, I think I want to point in one, in one of our brands, which I won't name had 18 different types of front bumpers for fire trucks. Um, and that, that, that just shows you the, the complexity for, for a pumper truck in, in particular um, is 18 different ways to solve a front bumper challenge. Right. And, 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 and they're massively complex engineering it goes into this stuff. So it's uh, we'd like to see less variation, but at the end of the day, we want to make sure that whatever we do solves a market problem for a customer, solves a need, differenti differentiates as a brand. So our, our brands can compete in the marketplace. It's interesting because no pun intended, it seems like you've been putting out fires a lot over the last couple of years and maybe not been able to focus as much on the long-term brand building and capabilities as you might have had this not been the COVID environment we've had. When you look at the market today, where do you see your biggest opportunities to improve areas of investment and how you can really continue to build these brands that 
everyone we speak to fully knows your brands who are in the industry, even if as layman, no one's heard of the company Rev Group. How do you think about that? Well, I think that um, first off, the, the investment thesis we put together was largely <clears throat> an operational story that the value creation um, to get multiples on our stock price was was largely around executing better. And I still believe that to be the case. And your point, notwithstanding the fact that the last two years have turned out differently, perhaps, than, than we had written down the script uh, maybe the script I'd written before I showed up here, but we have made tremendous progress in getting this organization aligned and getting ready. We, the first year we generated um, our performance was arguably better than it was the first four years combined. You could argue that, but I think it was, it was pretty solid, but, but we, it has been affected without question by um, the, the challenges that our management team is, is focused on today, but the bigger options, I think there's still this operational agenda that, that in turning around some of these businesses, I think the transit business, the electrification of some of our platforms, transit school bus is going to create opportunities for us. We have, you know, one of the businesses we get asked about a lot is our RV business. You know, we, we are, have really good performing businesses in the RV space, but there's a lot of markets in RV that we don't participate in. And, and even some of the markets we do, we can compete, compete in a bigger, we can get our throughputs up. So I think there even RV's got some investment opportunity for us, Evan, um, uh, but they're not large capital type investments are just they're they're meaningful investments for the business but not going to be big cash drains for us that could generate really good really good returns for us uh, so that's that's one that we're, we're we're investigating and and then still focused on fire and and, and transit those that, that's the ones that amos we're, we're really solid and analyst performance is really good so we're good good spot there yeah it does seem like so many of these businesses you've been churning under the surface and making a huge amount of progress, but because of the economic environment, you haven't been able to have all of it fall through the bottom line as you might have wanted, but we're excited to see what you have been doing. Yeah. Uh, on a longer term perspective, electrification buses and some of these other uh, in environmentally friendly types of products that are coming out, how close to reality are these? And how do you think about investing for them? Yeah, I think that uh, each specialty vehicle has its own story. There's largely going to be two types of electric, as it's going to play out in specialty vehicles, I think it's largely going to play out in, in two ways. One of them is going to be specialty vehicles that are primarily made on a on a OEM chassis, like we talked about earlier. And then there's the specialty vehicles that are kind of build as suit. And, I, and that, think about fire apparatus there. We build our own chassis there, RV to a certain extent, transit buses, our, our, our terminal truck business. Those are all chassis purpose-built chassis for the those two are both going to play out over over time and i think the other the next thing you get down to is is the use case around how are the vehicles actually used and and, and so school buses transit buses terminal trucks have great use cases because they're kind of run a route they come back to a spot they they position themselves well for an infrastructure that might be centrally located be it be it uh um alternative fuel or be it, be it uh, battery electric for charging. Um, those industries are, are, are kind of well suited from a use case standpoint. And then the last one is where's the government going to help because these things still come into premium. So you think about one, where can you scale? Where's the use case matchup and where's the funding going to be available? And, and school bus and transit buses kind of hit most of those clicks early. Uh, uh, you could get there with terminal trucks, which serve ports and, and those types of things as well. Uh, as being um, early adopters. 
and scale adopters for for that. So I think that's the ones that we we look at as being the areas where you have a solution. We, we've got as as you know on the we're on the, the Type A bus. We that's on a commercial chassis. So we we're working an up better at some point. The OEMs will build EVs at scale for for that, and so that'll be an adjustment. Um, we have we've announced in in transit we have a, a battery electric bus and that we produce that's passed out to the testing. So we're in that space, and we're and we've got a, a design in the in terminal. We've also released a terminal trucks. We've also released a full electric fire truck pumper truck. We'll be presenting that at the FDIC show in Indianapolis that's available for sale. We've actually sold one. Uh, and we do, we have, we have ambulance offerings too, not a full suite, but we have limited ambulance offer, offerings as well. They're electric. So we, we're, we want to be seen as a leader in this space, but you only want to move at the pace that the market's ready to adopt it, but you got to be in the front of it. So we've got a lot of activity in this, in this, in this area going on. And a lot of it's a, is partnering, Evan, you got to have the right partners because uh, you're not, we're not developing core technology. We're applying technology that's been developed by others um, um, for these applications. And it's helpful as we think about uh, the, the future of the company and of the planet as we do get some electrification of these. So just overall, you know, when you think about this business going forward and you've dug into these for the last couple of years, what are the biggest gems of Rev Group, whether it be specific brands or products or capabilities, what what do you view as the, really the biggest differentiating factors for you as a company? Well, I think I think from an investment thesis standpoint, I think what we're in we're in stable end markets that are funded for municipalities. So there's good the 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 the, the demand side of this thing is, is is pretty predictable and pretty solid for years. We've got leading market positions in almost every category that we're in. Some we have a little bit lesser, but most of most of the markets that we're in we have our brands are well established. They're, you know, they may not be common, commonly known at the dinner table at people's houses, but when you get in the industries that they're in, they're they're very well recognized and and, and recognized as leading brands. So those brands, the power of those brands is 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 something. And 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 because of the the, the nature of the the customers having the brand pull and the channels being entrenched, there's good stability in in the industry around that. So our a lot of our focus is you know adjacencies. How do we how do we think about uh, other markets we should be in or how do we get deeper in markets that we're already in? But a, lot, a big part of it is we just got to become a bit more operationally capable. A lot of the money and the value creation that we have as a company exists in us being a better manufacturer. And we, we talked a lot about that as well throughout our investment uh, um, thesis through our, our investor day, that there's just a tremendous, uh, when we get stable inputs here, I'm, I'm still very bullish on, what I think the opportunity is here for us to to go deliver against. We just we just we we need we need to get a, a little bit more stable environment so we can take advantage of that. Great, this has been so helpful, Rod. It really is helpful to understand what's going on and really see that there are a lot of temporary fixable problems that you're dealing with. Some of which are historical manufacturing inefficiencies and low hanging fruit to address yourselves. Some of which are driven by economic issues, and so. You know, as, as we spoke about earlier, Rev Group really is a unique collection of brands that's going through issues. And what we do as value investors is we dig into those to see which ones are temporary and permanent. Rev Group really fits in that category of market leaders that are well positioned for the long term, but are working through problems that really aren't structural. The risk reward skew is very positive 
And even going through the worst of times, we're pretty excited about the upside here that can drive eventual value creation for the company and for shareholders as well. Thank you so much, Rod. This has been great. Thank you, Evan. Appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Pazina Perspectives. If you'd like to hear more, be sure to subscribe to this podcast. And for more insights on value investing, visit our website at www.pazina.com. That's www.pzena.com. You can also follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter.